Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Gwyneth Palafox. Gwen is a licensed psychologist with a focus on helping teens and young adults find their most fulfilled and joyful lives. She's been supporting disabled and neurodivergent individuals for over two decades and is also the host of the podcast, Dr. Gwen Empowered. In today's conversation, we discuss why Gwen is passionate about working with autistic individuals, some common challenges autistic adolescents face when forming their identity, how to find a sense of belonging in the right environments, how neurotypicals can interact with autistic people from a trauma-informed perspective, characteristics of duly diagnosed autism and ADHD, self-acceptance, masking, and burnout, the medical model versus the social model of disability, Gwen's podcast, Dr. Gwen Empowered, and her ideas to cultivate a meaningful life including employment and relationships. In this episode, discover what's possible when you seek to understand. To learn more about Gwen Palafox, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Dr. Gwyneth Palafox. Hi, Gwen. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show. Let's start with a brief introduction. Oh, wow. How much time do you have? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I'm a clinical psychologist here in California. I have been really laser focused on supporting the neurodiverse community really for most of my professional career and training. And so my new obsession, maybe over the last, I don't know, five, six years is I got even more niched with my practice. So you know, up to five, six years ago, I was supporting the neurodiverse community very generally as a psychologist. And then I just realized that there was really no clear help to help neurodivergent teens prepare for adulthood, to come into their identity and their agency. And then I was working with young adults then who didn't really know how to put together a meaningful and fulfilling life for them in the context of the neuromajority. And so five, six years ago, I niched myself even more. And so now I only work with adolescence and adulthood in adult readiness and adult launching and how to create and live a meaningful and fulfilled life as someone who is neurodivergent. All right. Great. So what about adolescence or what about autistic people or what about autistic adolescents do you love when working with them? 
Oh my goodness gracious. I could spend all day on that. I am always curious and fascinated about the way people think. I have always been interested in this, but I have a real deep desire to understand. And so what do I love? I love that it's different. As my clients say, we're not boring. That's what they say to me. But there's just these creative, fascinating, interesting ways of thinking about the world, thinking about themselves, thinking about how they are in this world. And that to me is fascinating. I love that part. I share a lot of interest with my clients, whether it's, you know, from Doctor Who to Disney to Marvel to not DC, sorry, (laughs) but lots of different Studio Ghibli, you know, we share lots of these. And I think what I enjoy is meaning making. I really, really like to help people understand what things mean to them and then how it affects them. I really love what I do. I wholeheartedly laugh at least once a day because there's just something so sweet or funny or pithy or spicy that's being said. And yeah, I like being an ally of the community. It's really fulfilling for me. Got it. So there's something we like to talk about at the Global Autism Project, and that is your passion station. A passion station is a memory. When you are maybe feeling a little bit burnt out or overwhelmed, and this can happen, you know, with people in the helping profession, right? So in these moments when we're feeling overwhelmed, we visit our passion station to get a refuel of passion. And at the passion station, you know, it depends. It could be a person, maybe a specific client from your early years in your career, or maybe, you know, it could change also. Maybe it's someone more recently or even a family as a unit. When you're feeling these episodes of burnout and you're like, oh, why am I even here? Why am I in this field? You think back on that moment and you're kind of like, ah, this is my why. So what's your passion station? Oh, wow. Okay. Every time one of my clients has their own aha moment because of a reflection I've made, it is absolutely the goody, the candy, the gems, the yummy part of what I do. Because I think there's something so special about the therapeutic relationship. It's not like any other relationship. And so here I am, full attention, with all my capacities, and I might reflect something like this. And this just happened recently. I said to this client of mine, I said, he said, you know, I'm so overwhelmed by parties. You know, but I want to go because I care so much about this person, but I'm just exhausted. Like it's exhausting. I'm out for two weeks after I go. And I said, you know, so-and-so, you can just go for part of the time. And he was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And that insight for him alone, not only allowed going to this birthday party, but then it allowed all these subsequent events of creating a space for himself where he's like, wait a minute, I can do part of this in a way that I can digest and handle without it taking me out at the knees 
and still take care of myself. Mm. That's just like one example. But those little aha moments when a client says to me, you know, something like that, or, oh my God, I never thought about it that way. Or I never connected that before. That makes a big difference for me. Like that's the stuff. For me, it's the way in which someone thinks about themselves in a more loving, compassionate, caring way. Mm. That to me is always like the juicy stuff that I I absolutely love. That and that I, like I said, I there are many clients in which we laugh deeply about things and it's, there's just wonderful connections. So I would say the meaningfulness of the connections that I make that are full of understanding is probably what keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So when your clients come to you, is it usually out of, you know, their own motivation? These are adolescents, right? So, or is it their families that sign them up for therapy? What does that usually look like? I'm a big believer in nothing about me without me, nothing about us without us, right? So I don't actually, not anymore anyway, I don't see anyone that doesn't want to be in the work because the work can be invasive. (laughs) And it's really asking for someone to be vulnerable. But more importantly, you come to the space because there's something that you want to understand better or to have less suffering over, or you want to smooth out, you know, the bumps in the road there. And so most of my clients come to me, and I'm not saying that their families or their parents may not make the offering like, hey, do you feel like it could be helpful to speak to someone about this or to explore this with somebody? But the way that people usually get to me is through maybe a suggestion from a loved one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And more recently, I think coming to me through my own podcast and, and being able to see the way in which I might think about it's kind of clear on my podcast, the way I think about things and my framework for how I support people. And so they've come from there as well. But the person that I do the best with is a person who's like, I don't really know what this is going to be like, but I'm willing to have an open mind about it. And I'm willing to allow the relationship to create the space in which to do that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that's, you know, when you also just see the most success, right? When they are choosing their own goals, maybe, or at least have a say in what that is. Yeah. And that extends to clients that are non-speakers. You know, I have several typers in my practice. And so there's a communication partner that's there, but even approaching that in the same way in which how do we amplify and give space for voice. This is important to me as a therapist is making space and leaving room for breathing voice. How do we allow that to come in its own way, even if it takes 10 minutes? Come. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for me, it's that there's a person that is interested in the process, wants to be part of the process. Yeah. What are some common challenges that autistic adolescents face when forming their identity? I think it's not fully having an articulation about who they are. 
And that's normal in adolescence. I mean, that's an adolescent's job. Who am I? But I find that my clients tend to need more formality or a framework for how to self-reflect. You know, how do I do that? And a lot of times it's that the right questions asked, that there's a space actually to ask the question, but the right questions are being asked. Or maybe we need to use different metaphors or analogies that are meaningful to this person, right? Like if you like cars and that's really so interesting to you, can we create a way for you to advocate for what you need and what, you, what you're feeling through a dashboard, a car dashboard. What are, are there warning lights on your dashboard? Right. Mm. Like, so sometimes it's really taking those abstract concepts of thoughts and feelings and really giving life to them through something very tangible, but something that's tangible that's related to the interests of a person because that's kind of how they're thinking, whether they're musicians and we want to talk about how loud or soft something gets or how fast or staccato something is, right? Versus an inside out panel versus different sayings from different movies and and, and what they mean to a person. But how, how do we do that? So I find like that's the first challenge. Hmm. And then after that, it would be, how do I understand myself in the context of the neuromajority when I don't feel like I belong? And finding that place of belonging is so critical in my mind before we do social skills. And like for those of you like audio, like I'm, I'm have air quotes on, but we don't just need to teach how to act in the neuromajority. We want to really understand why. Hmm. And why is this hard for me? Why is it hard for me to be in this group of people? Why is it hard for me to go to an assembly? Why is it hard for me to take this particular class? So really, really bolstering, I think, not only the way they think about themselves, but to have language that goes along with that so that can get communicated. And then it's like, then how do we figure out how to be in the world? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that first step is one of the areas I spend a lot of time with. And when we get more fluency surrounding that, other pieces start to really click into place. Mm -hmm. So along this journey is this kind of self-acceptance also. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding why their brain works the way it does and then being okay with that. And putting yourselves in environments and situations that are friendly to your brain profile. And that if you have to be out of that environment, that habitat, I call them habitats because it's like people understand habitats for some reason, you know, like we understand that flowers need their own habitats, animals need their own habitats. But we, for some reason, forget that human beings who are even more complex also respond to their habitats, mm-hmm. right? Actually, environment plays a huge role. Who, What's in the environment and who's in that environment plays such a large role in oppressing or suppressing or supporting. But I think that's like where we can really empower people. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to change your brain. Like, don't do that. Like, please, actually, please don't. Like, please, let's have some variability in the world. And this is where the creativity comes in way more than thinking about something in the same old way. Like the way that my clients think boggle my mind. I mean, they are heads and shoulders. I mean, IQ, cognitive point. I mean, you know, they blow me away. I'm in awe of them all the time because of the ways in which they connect information and think and 
it's thrilling to me, actually. It, it makes my curious muscle just fire like crazy because I just want to know and I want to know and I want to know. <laughs> but more importantly, it's like, you don't have to be. You don't have to fit everywhere. You don't have to mask all the time. And actually, if you are going to mask, please make that a time that's important to you. And that's why you're masking. You're choosing to do that. But you shouldn't do that all the time. I mean, no one can sustain that. And that's why, you know, by the time sometimes they get to me in their 20s, they've got burnout. Mm. And it is real. And so it's really, really hard to come out of that and to recover from that when you've had a couple decades worth of masking and really ignoring what it is that you need, your brain needed. Mm-hmm. At that point, are you applying more of a like trauma-informed approach? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think complex trauma has to be part of the repertoire for a therapist who's supporting the neurodiverse community. And I say complex trauma because there are big and little, what we would call big and little T traumas all over the place that other people don't necessarily would identify as a trauma, right? Could you give an example? Yeah, I mean, even something as, you know, uh, even little ableist microaggressions, you know, like you're so smart, why can't you? Mm. That's a really classic, you know, what people might seem is very benign, but that my clients hear all the time. Yeah. Well, you don't look autistic. Wait a minute, you want a relationship? That doesn't mean you're autistic. You know, it's like things like this over time or even something as, as much as like, really not feeling like a sense of belonging, even as a young child on a playground, ways they've been treated by teachers, even ways they've been treated by their peers, uh, parents uh, unintentionally. Well, you know, you can do it then. So you're not doing it now. So you're lazy. You're unmotivated. Like you just need to get it together. I feel like it's those kind of actions and words that create really quite a bit of trauma. And so that's shaped the way that someone thinks about themselves. And then, you know, you get to this adult life in which supports and services radically shift. Mm -hmm. We see that from going from, you know, high school and in, in the United States, if you're under an IEP, having 40 accommodations maybe and a lot of support. And then you go to college and under the ADA, you now have three. Or there's an expectation that you need to spread your wings and fly when we don't have the social emotional, I think, muscles fully developed and definitely not the executive functioning muscles developed. We know that those don't come in till late 20s, mid to late 20s. And I think the framework or the lens of trauma really simply is when things happen to me that I can't resolve, that still stay with me that I don't fully understand, that keep happening to me without my consent and power and control, those are all trauma-related, mm -hmm. you know, events. And that happens. I mean, you don't have to spend much quality time with an autistic to know that that has happened really predictably throughout their life. Mm. So what do you think allies or even, you know, just people who might have an autistic person in their life, whether it's a coworker or a friend. I think siblings might actually have more of an understanding with this, but you know, more people on the periphery who don't have this kind of clinical training that you have. Like, What can they do? How can they interact 
with autistic people from this sensitivity of a trauma-informed lens. Seek to understand before judging. Ask why. And maybe not maybe why is too much, but help me understand. Mm. I noticed this. Help me understand it. I think societally we, we get hung up on verbal language as being the only indicator of IQ. Mm-hmm. Wow. If you can talk, you're smart. And it's like, you know, I know plenty that talk and are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll just, we'll just, I'll just say that. But you also see this with immigrants who don't really speak English in the U.S. They're thought of to have lower IQs. Yes. Yes. But they speak maybe multiple languages, you know, so what does that mean? But anyway, tangent. Yeah, no, exactly. And that sometimes we don't have the lexicon, the words to describe how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. or what's happening to me. How do we create space? Going back to your question of like, how can we support the autists in our life? You know, it's like, if you are able to read the cues, because a lot of people can, and I'm not saying everyone can, but read cues and get curious. That's what I would say. Sometimes stimming, which is oftentimes present, doesn't mean that the person's uninterested. They're just regulating. Mm-hmm. But some people will read that and be like, oh, well, they're not interested. And it's like, no, actually, they're really interested. They're regulating to stay in the moment. So get curious. Create space for curiosity and create space for difference. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. That would be great. I wish we could do that from a global perspective. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Gwen. So switching topics a bit, do you work specifically with individuals who are duly diagnosed with ADHD and autism? Yeah. Are ADHDers? Yeah. ADHD. Okay. I haven't heard that. ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a a newer term that's getting introduced for that dual. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm curious, what are some unique characteristics of those who lie in this space? And I asked because I attended a conference back in October in Poland. It was the Autism Europe Congress. And there was a presenter speaking on this topic and they were sharing how there's not enough research and that a lot of times there might be a misdiagnosis and just people don't really know how to treat one because it just kind of directly affects the other. Like there's a lot of gray area. So what do you know about this specific population? For me, and it goes back to like diagnostic kind of thinking, which I'm not a fan of. Diagnoses play a role in our systemic healthcare system in a biomedical model. I don't love it. I think anyone that knows me understands that I don't use the biomedical model to define disability, I use the social model. And when you use a social model of disability, then people in the environment and the environment itself actually have more to do with the with the way how disabled someone might look, right? All that being said, when I think that there's a dual happening, autism and ADHD, I see a significant challenge with attentional regulation alongside sensory components. 
sensory sensitivities. There's something happening in the sensory motor system. And this is something that we're very clear about actually even in the research for autists today, which is if you're autistic, you absolutely have a sensory sensitivity. There is something happening from a sensory motor perspective for you. We know that. You can have sensory sensitivities and not be autistic, but we know just based on neurology, based on not having as many neurons pruned very early, we've got super information highways coming into the brains of autistics, okay? So we know that. So when I am working with a client who is really contending with not only the sensory system, but also the attentional regulation system, and those things aren't mutually exclusive because they're overlapped, then that's usually like, wow, when we really need to work on impulsivity or distractibility, and that could mean distractibility outside, but also internal distractibility. We don't always see that in inattention, but an inattentive person will tell you, I've got so many things happening in my mind, but you'd never be able to see it. So I always call it the hidden ADHD. We just have to have a different way of thinking about regulating the system, even more so than your autists, your, your autistics without the ADHD component, even though regulation and attentional regulation is usually par for the course for an autistic. But that dual diagnosis really comes when ADHD is really front and center. And it's really getting in the way of everyday things that are frustrating. And that really is frustrating for a person. Mm. So I would say diagnostically, that's what I would look at. But I would spend even more time in the sensory regulation systems with a client that's dually diagnosed. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to something you said, just to clarify for our listeners who might not be familiar with the social model of disability, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? And then also, how would you encourage this person to change their environment? Like, how would you work with them to come up with strategies to improve their lives? So um, the social model of disability is the person with a disability looks as disabled as the quality of supports in their environment. A really simple, I think, example of that would be someone who's visually impaired and is in a community that has no textural changes in a sidewalk and no braille on an elevator, and no, let's say, audible cueing to cross the street, that person is going to look more disabled than if that person was in a community that had those accommodations in their environment. But because I think autism is hidden, you don't see it in a person right away, it really then becomes, sadly, the burden of the person who has the disability to advocate for themselves. And this is where, for me, surrounding yourself, choosing the people that surround you and setting up your environment in a way that's friendly and comforting and safe for you is then even more critical because you are the one that has to direct those accommodations or, or that support system. I would say, choose the right people. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a lot. Hmm. If it's just one, that one person who gets you, accepts you, believes you, right, is going to be more than 
the six people coming in and out of your life that kind of get it or don't, I don't know, right? That you have to then work to be with. So I'd say, choose your people. And I would say, be unabashed about how you set up your physical environment. Just do it. Do whatever it takes. My co-host on one of my podcasts, who's autistic, her bedroom looks really interesting because she has soundproofed her windows and she has blackout curtains and she's got different things happening. And any other person that would walk into her bedroom would probably be like, what is happening in here? And she is just unabashed about it because she needs good sleep, like we all do. Set your environment up. What you can control, control it. Control it and fully lean into it. Accept that's what you need because you need recovery. And I don't think we spend enough time on repair and recovery. Hmm. So environment, environment, environment. (laughs) I don't know if that answers your question, Rachel. Yeah, it totally does. And I love like the, okay, yeah, that example of the room. I mean, it's just like, lately I've been wearing an eye mask because it's too bright. It's an accommodation that I've put in place. And so I think sometimes maybe what I've heard from autistic people is like, maybe they didn't know they could. They didn't have, feel like they had permission to ask for these things or to put them in place. Oh, 100% resonating. If I think about the clients that I support and I remember like just kind of back to my other aha passion station, right? My client didn't realize that he could just go to part of the party. Yeah. And then he's given permission to go to part of a party. We've even gotten it down for him to where it's like, how much energy do you have? So I don't do time management. I do effort effort and energy management. Time management is not actually something that makes a lot of sense for my clients because we're always managing energy. And so for that particular client, it was like, how much energy do you have and how much will you have to spend to be there? Okay. About how much time is that for you? And in the beginning, he doesn't really know, right? Because we've never done this before. And so now we do an experiment. Okay. The party is from six to nine. Can you leave at 7.30 or can you leave, you know? Mm. And then let's test it again. Let's come back and let's kind of get that calibration for you. So now he just knows Mm -hmm. like, this is what I got in the tank. This is how long I can stay. Or I really want to stay for the whole time. So this is what I have to do three days in advance in order to fill my tank to that space so I can do that. And then I can wake up the next morning without feeling like I've been hit by a truck. Yeah, right. So just be so like unapologetic about your environment. And I think most of all, it's like, please, please, please like find your people. Find your people because a sense of belonging is a critical need for humans. Mm Mm-hmm. Too often we feel too isolated, especially when we don't feel like we belong in a place or we feel like, why is this harder for me? Or, wow, everyone's looking at me or, you know, and I've had some of those experiences just being ethnic, right? And it's not exactly the same as being neurodivergent, but I do have some sense of walking to a place and being like, whoa, I do, uh, like, I am not something that belongs in this space, (laughs) you know? And it's immediately felt and like... I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, no one has to say anything about it, by the way. Right. Um, I get that very clearly. So yeah, do that less. Be choosy and protect yourself. You're worth it. Protect yourself. It's okay. It's okay that you're not going to be the social butterfly in, in the room. 
Yeah. So what would you say are other criteria for a meaningful life? So we we talked about sense of belonging. That you're not always burned out, right? You've got good energy management. That you're doing something that you feel is fulfilling and purposeful. That you the, the, the way that you're spending, the way you're occupying your time every day is meaningful to you. That I think is so important. I mean, occupying time is an important concept, but if it's just full of checking off boxes or something that's really unfulfilling, I think that really zaps and sucks meaning out of people's life. Right. What about for autistic people who might struggle to look for employment, might struggle to look for employment specifically that they find fulfilling? Yeah. And, and we know that that's a national problem. Mm-hmm. We know that under an unemployment in the United States for neurodivergent individuals is about 85%. Yeah. Those are the stats, right? What I would suggest here is what do you love? Like, what could you talk about and do all day long? And when you're in it, you're energized by it. It's not like draining, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I could talk about why the 10th doctor is the best doctor because I could, (laughs) but uh, you know, what thrills you? What is so satisfying? What comes so easily for you? And then how do we touch a career to that? And so, so often what I find with my clients is they haven't found the space in which their strengths are celebrated and their weaknesses don't matter. That's the key. And there are a few people out there and agencies out there that are trying to help autistics with this. But it's so few and far between. But I would say, start with your interest first and then do so much research about any way, shape, or form you could make a living based on that interest. So that's one thing I would say. And the other is like, how do you work the best? Many of my clients aren't good for the eight to five or the nine to five job to go somewhere, to be with other people from nine to five, work in a cubicle. Like that's not sustainable for many of my clients, but what works for them are project-based jobs, you know, where they have a job, they start it, they finish it. They've got a time frame for that, but they can do that in the comfort of their home and their environment's managed. That's maybe an upside of coming out of COVID in the sense that, you know, we have more work at home acceptance than we ever have. Right. But lean into your interests, work with your preferences and your strengths. If you can align those things, that's a good recipe for success there. Yeah. Not saying that's easy and maybe you need help, but yeah, don't feel like you have to follow the traditional path of a nine to five. So what I would say. Mm-hmm. Do you have some clients who, you know, one of their goals to a meaningful life is to be in a relationship also, like a romantic relationship. And how do you help them with that? It is more common that my clients want a relationship and companionship. And I know that flies in the face of the stereotypes of autism out there in the movies and things like, wow, they feel and they want relationships. It's Incredible. It's changing though with love on the spectrum, you know, like there's, I think there's more awareness now. 
So do we not, do we all want more Judy? Isn't that her name? Jody. Jody. I want more Jody. She's the relationship person. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. The therapist. Not in the US one, but oh, I just want more Jody. I like, I want you to draw out my life, Jody. Please come over. <laughs> but yes, going back to how to help people have relationships. It's like, okay, not only do you need to know yourself, right? Like, so all the way back to what we talked about, which is how do we develop a lexicon for who you are, how you work, what moves you, what you detest and you hate, you know, these things. But there also then when you enter a relationship is how do you tolerate not being able to control everything? Mm. And I understand that, you know, that's a compensation for not feeling like you can control anything in relationships. But I think that interactive, dynamic, ever-changing product of being in a relationship is what tosses my clients into a loop. Because it's like, no, she liked this, but no, but she changed her mind. Yeah. Like not, it's not anymore. Right. But it's all these exponents. It's like multiplicative because it's like you change, she changes different product. You change, she doesn't different product. She changed. Right. So it's like, how am I okay with aligning on our values? The things, the way we might want to treat people, the things that are important to us, how do we align on those? And then how do we just navigate this, the, 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 the little changing stuff? So I think when you can give bigger frameworks, uh, rules, if you will, to follow like that, that aren't so rigid and restricted, that can be really helpful. There's amazing relationship, actually neurodivergent relationship coaches out there who are absolutely lovely. Grace Myhill comes to my mind. She was on my show and all the ways in which she helped couples communicate and understand each other were like awesome. I mean, I was just like, tell me more, talk dirty to me. I <laughs> want to know all of the all of the ways, you know? But there are people out there now. I mean, it's growing, you know, even online communities just for the neurodiverse community are growing. And I, lo I love that. I love seeing that. But relationships are hard, Rachel, anyway. Like, yeah. you know, in general, they're hard. Exactly. So, but that's yeah. helpful, I think, for anyone who's listening. All right, Gwen. So you've mentioned your podcast, your show. Tell us about that. What kinds of topics do you talk about? What kinds of guests do you bring on? Yeah. Um, my podcast, Dr. Gwen Empowered, really was born out of COVID. I needed to be a part of the solution to accessing service and accessing information. And I had just seen so many people get cut off from supports. And then because they didn't have enough money really to close that gap, they got left with nothing. And so my podcast originally started off as how do I curate good quality information for people that they can access for free and in their own way? And so I convinced all my professional colleagues to come onto the show and be like, you're going to talk to me <laughs> about the difference between ed therapy and tutoring. You're going to come on the show and talk to me about the difference between neuropsych assessments and psychoeds. You're going to come on, you know, like, and so they were actually questions that I was always being asked. 
And so I had professionals come on to the show to talk about what vision therapy is or what's visual processing or what's sensory integration or what's interoception or you know whatever it is. And so the show really is about bringing on professionals to educate and empower the audience. It's really there to be another source of information for people who are like, what's speech therapy? Wait, what's occupational therapy? Wait, you know, and so that's what that's there for. I'm trying to also just do more information about people's rights. And that really falls in the IEP process and what an IEP, an individualized educational program is. And that really only applies to people in the United States. But I just find that so much of the marginalized community have no idea what their rights are Mm. and what they're legally, what a student is legally able to get and be how they're able to be supported. And, you know, of course, I do a lot about transition and adult living because there is very little in the adult space. Yeah. And I've been focusing a lot lately on self-diagnosis because so many adults who had never been diagnosed are coming to the space, whether it's through TikTok, usually it is, and then doing just a ton of research and being like, oh my goodness, I fall in the spectrum somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's been really interesting. But I think the goal for my podcast is always empowerment through information. And I think just for people to know that they don't need to fit into a box and it's okay. And like, please don't, because that's really boring. I mean, (laughs) unless it's the TARDIS, then you can fit inside that box. But we all know that that box is bigger on the inside. Sorry, this is like my special interest. But, you know, how do we create voices and representation that say, yes, yes, neurodiversity, yes, yes. Yeah, great. And it's hosted on YouTube, right? You publish videos. Yeah, it's a visual uh, video podcast. Mm -hmm. It's on YouTube and then it's on all the, it's on Apple and Spotify and Amazon and Audible. Okay. As well for just auditory peeps. Yeah. All right, Gwen, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents? So parents of young adolescents, maybe their kids are in the preteen ages. What's the best steps they can take now? Or what can they say to their kids? It parallels what we were talking about earlier. Seek to understand your teen. Seek to build a relationship with your teen because the relationship is what allows for risk-taking and growth and challenge, which is what is inevitably in their future as they age. Don't jump to conclusions. There are a lot of times reasons why we're not quick out of a door or we can't wake ourselves up or we don't, we only eat certain types of food or we have a meltdown when we come home from school. Seek to understand and seek to empower your teen to modify their own environments based on what it is they need. And I think creating just the environment, having a parent in that space that is seeking to understand and accepting of what their child needs provides the safety for which their child can go out and do that in the world when they leave. Yeah, great. So it's just arming them with the right tools. You gotta feel accepted. And you got to feel loved and you got to feel a sense of belonging before you do anything else. And too often we want kids to get an A in AP physics. It's like, that is not going to matter. Oh, I'm sorry, physics people. (laughs) But in the grand scheme of things, I'd rather someone have a sense 
of confidence and self-trust and self-reliance to go out into a very scary and noisy world, that will go much farther than an A in algebra. Yeah. I change it to algebra. (laughs) (laughs) Not to pick on anyone. Not to pick on math. Okay. Anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gwen. This has been a lovely conversation. And I will post a link to your podcast and your website in our show notes so people can go follow you as well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for letting me ramble about something I really love. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Several points stood out to me from my conversation with Gwen. One is the importance of finding a sense of belonging in the right environment, or habitat, as Gwen likes to say. Having one person who is truly on your side could be better than having many who don't really understand or accept you. Another point that caught my attention is the need for non-autistic people to be aware of trauma-related sensitivities when interacting with autistic people. You never know what someone may have experienced in their childhood, and it is very likely that the autistic person in front of you has endured ableist remarks and attitudes. Like Gwen, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.